Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Mental health is a big topic of discussion in the world today, and for good reason. While it can be hard to go to therapy and being vulnerable with someone you just met can seem scary, it's something everyone could use more of, especially on their worst days. I'm joined today by Aaron Pash, CEO and co-founder of Ellie Mental Health, who is working to raise awareness about the importance of mental health services and to make each session as comfortable and fun. I said that, fun. We're going to talk about that. And as fun as possible. Aaron and Ellie Mental Health use humor to help break down barriers and make people recognize it's okay to reach out for help. Aaron, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Hi, Aaron. I'm so glad to be here. And I just love the title because I feel like my company is that. It is a brand on purpose. So it's it's a meeting of minds and I'm super excited. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you here. And mental health has been a topic, a theme for all the good reasons and all the, the reasons we can think of on the show since its founding more than three and a half years ago. And I just want to start a little bit with just the founder's story. Tell me a little bit about Ellie Mental Health and I could be getting this wrong, but I think I have this right in that they're actual physical facilities, yes? Yeah, we have brick and mortar clinics. Okay. And when was it founded? Why was it founded? How's it going? And if you could also juxtapose this with the rise in telehealth services, which I think are fine, but just if, you, if we can kind of also talk a little bit about that. So I founded Ellie Mental Health back in 2015. I had worked several different jobs, whether it be in nonprofits, working for the government, even working in a little bit of private practice. And the reality is, is there were so many things that just didn't make sense, right? That was really what it was all about. It was like, well, how am I supposed to help that family if this thing doesn't work together? And so it was so frustrating, to be fair. And I was a fresh grad right out of grad school. And I was so excited about mental health. I mean, truly passionate, like eat, live, breathe, sleep kind of how I'm going to make a difference in the world. And so it was really, I described that passion and that frustration that created this like sandwich together, created this motivation to do something about it. I opened up our first clinic with my co-founder Kyle in 2015 in St. Paul, Minnesota. About six months later, with landlord permission, we took a sledgehammer through the wall and added six more offices after literally people would come and knock on our door and say, we want to work here. This just makes sense. It feels like you're filling the gaps that we're hungry to fill too. And then we started adding more satellite locations as people would kind of come to us and be like, we want an Ellie in our community. We want to see this different thing. We want to do this thing that really treats therapists the way they want to be treated, that really emphasizes let's make the right choices to make sure people can access high quality care by maybe allowing people to pay their deductibles over a whole year, making sure we staffed our clinics with people who were available outside of work hours, all the way down to the way we answered the phone at the front desk. You know, an example I love to share about the Ellie difference is I had a mom call me who said her 16-year-old kid really, really, really needed to go to therapy, having some difficulty peer group, school, all of that kind of stuff, but said he's shy and quiet. And I said, well, what kind of music does he like? And so we spent about five minutes talking about what kind of music he liked. And I was like, I have the best therapist for him. And this kid came in and it took probably six months for this kid to finally open up, but they connected on music. And just from that first phone call, making sure we're getting people the right access. And so over time, it kind of grew and people in the community started realizing this place really is different just from the values that they hold to the decisions that 
that they make that just makes sense for people. And so we kept growing and growing. We've grown to Minnesota. We have 20 locations here in Minnesota um, that are all owned by me here in Minnesota, I suppose, and some of our partners. And then, gosh, it was a couple of years ago. I can't quite put my finger on it. Kind of like COVID for everyone. It's just kind of a blur. But it was a couple, at least a couple of years ago. That social responsibility that pulled us to add more Ellie's in Minnesota really started kind of tugging at us when I would go and speak at national conferences and people would be like, please bring Ellie here. We need Ellie here. And I'd be like, surely you have an Ellie here. You just haven't found it yet or it needs to be nurtured. And over a period of time, lots of colleagues and people I had talked to were like, no, truly, we don't have an Ellie here or anything that's that's quite like it. And so I went to an attorney. And I was like, so I just want to create this really cool co-op of a bunch of therapists who want to do the LE model in different states. And he's like, oh, you mean franchising? I'm like, no, that's what McDonald's is. And I like marched out of there angrily. And then I sat on it for a while. I explored other options. I really looked at different things we could do and then really came back to the the table and kind of said, well, if I could partner with like-minded people who embody some of the things that make Ellie successful then maybe we could go via the franchise model. And so today, if you want to hear the whole story, right? The today, we started franchising about a year ago across the United States, and we have about 450 clinics in 38 states popping up. I think there's like 20 already open, and there should be a couple hundred open by the end of 2023. So that's really from the very beginning to present day, kind of where where we've ended up with Ellie. Wow. So- I keep reading everywhere that we don't have enough mental health professionals. There's not enough access. It sounds like you are both serving the professional and giving them, this isn't supposed to be punny at all, but a healthier, more productive, more performative, better work lifestyle. And at the same time, finding that intersectionality with meeting the needs of a community, the mental health needs of community that otherwise they might not have had access to. Did I get that right-ish? Yeah, you you totally got it right. We kind of always describe ourselves as like a hybrid. Like we want to do what major big mental health organizations can do for a community by providing access to resources and providing some of those things like a paycheck every two weeks for their staff and making sure that they have benefits. And we also want to be able to embody what a private practice can do, which is really afford creativity for the professional so that we can meet, you know, fill those gaps in what clients might be having having, and create a culture that doesn't feel quite so stuffy or corporate. And so really we talk about that as the LE gap that we kind of fill where we want to be the best place to work for mental health professionals and the best place for clients to receive care. And it feels to the uninitiated in this world, when it comes to the business side of it, intuitive and counterintuitive, intuitive in that, yes, I mean, there's nothing that's better than face-to-face and having access to the right therapist at the right moment in your life. At the same time, there's also this rise in telemedicine and telehealth and you know, better help. And, and I feel like you are right before that. What are your thoughts on telehealth and therapy? Is this something that you play in or don't? Yeah, we offer it a ton. And, you know, a lot of people ask me that question as kind of like an industry leader. Is telehealth here to stay? And my answer is yes. Everything I've heard from insurance companies to the way that people are receiving services is that telehealth is a great second option. And what I mean by second option is we've learned in the pandemic that telehealth is a great way to reach people who are more difficult to reach, right? We talk about getting rid of some 
access barriers for maybe people who live farther away from a brick and mortar clinic? Or how many of us have had that opportunity where a kid gets sick and now we have to cancel our appointment at the last minute, right? Telehealth can kind of fill some of those gaps for people. But we have actually started seeing some preliminary data that shows that people would still rather be seen in person. There's so much that we can develop in a relationship when we get to really connect with that person in that same energy field in that room, right? And I kind of describe it as, you know, when we were all kind of stuck in our own homes during the pandemic, we could FaceTime or Zoom our loved ones, but that's not the same as being able to give them a hug, right? And it's not even just the the physical touching, it's the energy, right? And so we know that face-to-face, there's a lot we can see with body language and just environment and how people are adapting that really helps them adapt and grow more in their goals, I should say, for treatment. And so I love telehealth and I love that it fills those barriers. I love that if people can't make it in person, they don't have to cancel their appointment. I mean, from like a true industry perspective, we've reduced our late cancellations and kind of no-show rates by about 10%, which means we're providing more access to care for people who maybe have a difficult time accessing it. So telehealth is great and it still doesn't replace the real deal. I would also say that we try and encourage people to come in for that first appointment in person so people can just kind of get the vibe, get the energy, right? And then if telehealth is how it's ongoing, then that's how it works best ongoing. But at least they're still like kind of feeling the space, the setting, the surrounding, seeing the person face to face. So they're not having to kind of guess in therapy what that experience is is meant to be like. Yeah. And also, aren't there still issues with state laws? Like I I remember during COVID, I've, I have lots of friends who are therapists, and social workers, and clinical psychologists, you name it. And they were only able to like see people, they're only licensed in like New York and Florida. And if somebody from Minnesota dialed in, they're like, nope, sorry, I'm not. But why is it that way? It shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, that seems to me, I kind of get it, but don't most of these states, aren't the credentials and the credentialing and the licensing similar? Like, why does it have to be? Because it feels to me like all you're doing is reducing the opportunity for the patient to get great access to a therapist by limiting them to just that state. Or what if they're working in another state for one reason or another, pandemic, even though they're domiciled in New York, but they're working in Florida for six months? I don't know. It's just, it seems to me that needs to be fixed or addressed. Yeah. You know, there are some groups out there working on on that, like the Association for Clinical Counseling, which is a license type. They're kind of doing this, you know, borderless kind of packed and it's gaining some momentum. But the reality, right, let's just talk about it, is that licensing standards are similar, but not the same across states. Therapy and the entities that govern people to be able to have these independent licenses, there are varying degrees and it's not a uniform standard. I think if that were the same, then it would be super easy to go to and from states. But like, for example, the state of Minnesota requires a certain number of hours of graduate school hours, a certain number of supervision hours, a certain number of practicing hours before I can have an independent license. Because when I get that independent license, I can practice with nobody governing me. Right. And so think about that. If I wasn't managing my own mental health or I was, you know, all of a sudden I had my own mental health breakdown, right. Or something, nobody could tell me I can't work even if I'm not being the best. Right. And so it is to protect the public. 
which is why we want to make sure people are, you know, board approved and licensed and, and making sure that they're following that. But it does make it difficult. And it is kind of silly. The other thing to think about is that I want to say that this wave of mental health has made people realize it's, it's not just a want, it's a need, right? Like I need to go to therapy, not I just want to. Historically, outpatient mental health services were kind of thought of as like this bougie thing that only the wealthy could afford because they can, you know, they're the worried well and they can talk about all their problems. And as we're destigmatizing mental health, we're realizing that everybody can benefit from that kind of access. But it doesn't mean that everyone has the same means to pay, right? So insurance companies require you to be board approved or board certified or licensed in your state. And therefore, in order to do that, you can't use your insurance if you're working with a therapist who's not licensed under that insurance provider. And so again, one of those things where states get a chance to decide what the rules are around insurance companies and without something like nationalized healthcare, right? Like if we don't see it on this national scale, the logistics of it can really, the same way that it can kind of be a burden that people can't access therapists in other states, we're also reducing the access unless we fix some of the macro system issues within mental health care. So I'm with you. I feel like people should be able to see whoever is the best fit for them. And with telehealth, it's great that it's available. Unfortunately, the system hasn't caught up with us. And so the only people who are able to access those maybe true experts that might be available in other states are people who can pay out of pocket. You can practice, you know, a lot of therapists will practice as a coach, right? And not as an actual licensed clinician. You kind of like take your hat off and put a different hat on, but you can't bill insurance for that. So it's kind of this weird mixed bag of like, you want to be able to help all the people, but that means that people need to be able to use their insurance. Otherwise it's, it's out of reach for a lot of others. Yeah, no, it's well said. I mean, and I suppose another way of looking at it is this issue is just like you said, a symptom of a larger macro issue with regards to our broken healthcare system at the national level, right? It all kind of just filters down. Why is it called Ellie? Oh, so that's actually a story I tell a lot and it's not sexy. It's like kind of a boring story, but I'll explain it. But is it sad? No, it's not sad at all. Okay. It's, okay. Then go ahead. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just not like really fun. Like, oh, like, you know, it's just kind of, but when we started Ellie, we knew we wanted to be something family services. Seven years ago, the community, even here in Minnesota, which is a very liberal state, was not ready for something to be blank behavioral health, blank mental health, right? And our goal was to reduce stigma and have access. So we had this family services for the last two. And then we had the logo of elephants, right? So the elephant was the logo before we even knew what we wanted it to be called. Elephants have so much symbolism in mental health. We talk a lot about the elephant and the rider, the rider being our rational brain and the elephant being our emotional brain. And we can kind of steer the elephant except for when we can't. We talk about the elephant in the room. Elephants are a matriarchal species, which, you know, this company is led by by a woman or women and is very grounded in families, right? So there's just all this rich symbolism. And there's a million more things across cultures I've learned as owning this company, and it all just fits. So we had an elephant and we had family services, and we could not think of what to call the, the company. So <laughs> my partner and I, we took like a long weekend. We finally had to submit the documents to the Secretary of State's office to be a business, And we had a list of like 150 things in different languages, different metaphors for strength or trunk or all of this stuff. And on that list was Ellie on my list. And my business partner at the time, Kyle, he looked at that and he was like, where'd that name come from? And I said, oh, 
well, that was at the top of my baby name list. And he's like, was it? And I'm like, well, yeah. When we officially started talking about the company, I was pregnant at the time and I had a baby name list for boys and girls. And I had a boy named Graham and that was the top name for a girl list. So it kind of has just become that that Ellie, this company is the girl baby that I didn't have. And so it's it's a cute story, but it kind of, it's, it's involved. It's not like a quick, like, oh, my grandma's name was Ellie or anything like that. But that's that's why it's Ellie. I think it's a great story. And I appreciate you also referencing the elephant. I think that's so interesting. And what you didn't mention also, I think which probably plays into it is the memories, right? You have a memory like an elephant. And oftentimes it's those deep, I just, I play Dr. Phil on TV, the real Dr. Phil. Oftentimes it's those memories that can cause triggers and trauma and all sorts of recurring issues. So I think there's an interesting kind of corollary there too. I love that. Yeah. You know, they say elephants never forget. And I want to say that that's a trait of a therapist. Like we remember the things so that, you know, people can, can process through them. I always talk about that with my clients. Like you don't have to, you don't have to hold on to that memory. I'll hold it for you. I'll never forget yeah. it for you. Right. And a lot of us want to go to see you because we were trying to process and forget and, or put on a shelf somewhere, <laughs> a really terrible memory that we can learn from, but not have to keep revisiting every day. Right. So I just think that's so interesting. So let's talk about a pretty controversial topic. Kanye, there are still people out there. I guess I'm going to lead with my opinion on this, or you can imply it's implicit or explicit. There's still people out there who are like, no, give the guy a break. He has mental health issues. He obviously is manic and bipolar. And then there's other people. I'm the other people who are like, I empathize with that. I do. But what he's doing and the power of of his influence actually becomes a human health issue because people will die because of his behavior and his actions. So you cannot say he's behaving this way because of his mental health. I think that it's important for us to discuss and parse the two because I don't think that endangering others, I don't think mental health should ever be used as an excuse to endanger potentially others and or be a dog whistle for hate or racism or bigoted behavior. But I just wanted to ask you what you think because you know I feel like you are square in this as both a business person, but also as a mental health professional. And I just wanted to kind of get your opinion on this. And I can also tell you as somebody who grew up in the Jewish faith that it's kind of that the trifecta, right? Yeah, it is a big deal. And I will tell you, and I, I always kind of highlight different stories of different clients. I change a lot of the details so no one could ever know who I'm talking about. But I had a client several years ago who has bipolar disorder. And when they were manic, they made a really bad choice and they threatened their child. You know, they were just, they thought they were being playful, but they threatened their child with a knife and they ended up losing custody. And I ended up working with this person and they were delightful. I really liked this person and they couldn't understand why her daughter was taken away. Right. So it's one of these things where it's like your mental health can't be an excuse. It can't be the reason. Like I, like you said, I can have so much empathy and I can understand all the trauma that you've been through and all of the things that led you to be, right? I'm a parent. I've lost it sometimes, right? Like I, I have so much empathy and you're exactly right. We can't use mental health as an excuse for why it might harm other people. And we can't let that, like that in itself is just such a dangerous idea that we're okay with people, you know, having hate speech or harming others because they have an unmanaged, you know, mental health thing going on. It's hard for me too, like with Kanye specifically, I mean, they talk about him having bipolar disorder and, you know, we can see some of those symptoms play out on a very public platform, but there also can't be this excuse too for people who show no signs and symptoms 
right? Who then all of a sudden come out and do something crazy, right? Like a mass shooting or something like that, right? We kind of all have these demons and there will never be a space in the mental health space where we can ever support, we can empathize, but that's not the same as support or tolerating behavior that harms other people. And, you know, it's pretty conflictual too. A lot of people will talk about, if we're going off off subject on things or things that are controversial, a lot of people talk about, well, what if it doesn't harm other people and it just harms the person? right? Like where do people's lines get crossed? Why do people feel like they get to control somebody's own body from them cutting themselves? Or more recently, they talk about people wanting to, you know, physician assisted suicide, right? Like, so there's a lot of, there's probably more conflicting opinions within the mental health community where more people feel like harming other people, like that's a no-go, right? Like we can't stand behind that empathy. Yes, but support or, you know, having tolerance for it. No, but it's pretty divided on the, well, why can't people have the right to be able to do something to themselves? Well, but isn't there really no such thing as a victimless crime? Even if you do something to yourself, aren't you actually either mentally and sometimes maybe even if accidental physically hurting others, when you take your own life, it is the most selfish thing you can possibly do. And in the wake of that, there are people you leave behind who are devastated and tormented and have their own issues forevermore because you did that, because you made that choice with or without their consent or knowledge, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, it's just because whether it's, you know, because you're struggling with something or whatever, but I get in some ways why that could be controversial and why it's probably often discussed in your circles. It is because a lot of people, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm torn, right? Like I get convinced one way or another, depending on who I'm talking to, because understanding some of the journey and the process that people have to go through, it is a selfish journey, right? And it's important that they do that and and kind of sort that out. I would never want anyone to take their own life ever. I'm not okay with people harming themselves, but I'm saying I, I understand how people can you know, it's almost empathy for how people can think that that would be an okay outcome for them, right? And we spend a lot of our training and time working with people on on finding another way. And we're usually pretty successful, right, at helping people figure that out a different way. But it's a debated topic across, you know, kind of the mental health field that, so we've agreed that we can't harm others, but what really are the rules when it comes to ourself? Right. Someone did posit to me not so long ago, What's the difference with someone who is struggling severely with ALS and they have a very compromised lifestyle and they want to just end it versus somebody who has demons and no matter what therapy and drugs in the world, they too have a very tormented lifestyle as well. They just want to end it. And I have no answer. Both are terrible outcomes. They're both terrible. They are. That's exactly the point, right? Is that if we're going to at mental health the same way we do physical health and create that parity. Like we have to be willing to have these tough conversations and look at that suffering looks different for everybody. Yeah. And I know that you, you're very busy running a fast growing enterprise. Are you still also counseling patients and seeing patients? I'm not anymore, mostly because it's not fair to the clients, right? I am off doing things all over the place. And if they're, you know, if, if their acuity got higher, I wouldn't be able to see them. And that would kind of be unethical if I'm like, hey, I know you need therapy this week, but I'm not available for three weeks. So for now, that's paused. I do hope to see clients again in five, 10 years when things maybe slow down or, or my role shifts at some point. 
I love therapy. I love doing it. I miss doing it a lot. I will say that I get to do it more with people in my personal life for fun, right? And not officially, right? Like I call no, people or something. your friend. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're friends, right? We're their friends. Kind of just talk to other people. And when I was seeing, you know, 35, 40 clients a week, I, I just kind of would jam my schedule full. I didn't have that same capacity to help people in my personal life. So it's been kind of a fun shift and blend and mix where I have a greater capacity to help people maybe outside of the actual therapy room, but utilize some of those same skills, which is still pretty fun for me. And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I'm just kind of curious because most of my friends who are therapists also go to therapy for themselves and also because they hear some very, I mean, I get it. You go into this profession and you're, you have to, you have to learn how to compartmentalize like in any sort of health related field, but they hear some heavy, heavy stuff, really heavy stuff. Yeah. So I have, I have established care with a therapist and I kind of see her when I know I need to, right? Like I really awesome people in my life where the, when they can just see that I'm carrying something heavy, I'm like, yep. And it's just kind of like, they don't need to say, Aaron, hey, it's time to go to therapy. It's just little things where they're like, gosh, you know, you really do seem exhausted. And I'm like, yep, all I needed was somebody to point that out. I make an appointment with Jill and we get to catch up and I never regret it. I never, ever do. I always, I always am like, oh, it's a whole hour out of my week where I could be doing all of these things. And then every time after I'm done, it's like this cathartic feeling. And I will tell you, as somebody who's gone to therapy as a therapist for on and off for the last decade, I almost never talk about my burden of my clients or my caseload. When I go to therapy, it is like all about me. (laughs) And that feels so good, right? Like everybody needs that. The same way when people come to therapy, it's all about them, right? And I always tell people there is no one else in your life besides a therapist where you can just have an hour to be unapologetically talking about all the things that matter to you without any of that social interaction that's required to go back and forth. And that is so important for people to just have that. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about self-care and I think therapy is a very important part of self-care for a lot of people. Just like I know that to regulate my own mental well-being, I need to exercise, I need to work out, I need mobility, I need motion. I also really love getting my teeth cleaned. I know that sounds crazy. Most people like going to the dentist. That's like a, like a massage. Can you talk a little bit about self-care and how that's important regardless of whether or not you have access to, or if you do see a therapist, either episodically or regularly? Yeah. I do think that seeing a therapist is a part of self-care. What I worry about when it comes to self-care is that people, like everything, it's kind of become this polarized issue where if self-care has to be, I'm going to the spa for half a day, or I'm going to do, it has to be this grand gesture. And I like to remind people that self-care is actually really small things that we can do throughout the day to make us better. You know, a lot of people will be like, I don't have 30 minutes to go work out in a gym. And I'm like, do you have five minutes to go up and down the stairs in your office building? How about I don't need to go to the spa for three hours. I don't have it in the budget. I don't have the time. I have a job. How about five extra minutes in the shower and turn the hot water hot? <laughs> you know, like it's, it's able to find all of those little things. The same way that therapy can't fix us overnight, we can't just magically go to a spa for a day or do this, go on a vacation and come back and just say, wow, I'm all better now. The whole idea of it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so I like to remind people that self-care can be grand gestures, but really if you want to make a difference to really help like 
balance your central nervous system and keep you in that kind of like good space, it needs to be, it needs to be frequent and to be frequent, it probably needs to not cost you a lot of money and not take up a lot of your time. Yeah. I always kind of discern the difference between behavior and habit and not all habits are good behavior. Not all behaviors are better, but I do try to make things that make me happy and regulated habitual in your words, frequent, because it's all about being constant, right? And then there's things to look forward to, right? You can, it's almost like a reward system in some ways. I want to also just ask you and talk a little bit about vulnerability. So you, you do sit in this hybrid role. You are a licensed and licensed in the state of Minnesota <laughs> and maybe elsewhere. And you also run a business and you talked about accessibility and stigma, reducing stigma, increasing accessibility, all things I love. I still think there is such a stigma around mental health. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how corporate leaders, executives, founders, people like us can be more vulnerable, can talk about it, can be more open about it without oversharing. Boundaries are important. I respect that. A couple of years ago, I wanted to, I forget the name of the column. I wanted to submit a column to Vox about childhood trauma that I had experienced. And I ran it by my wife, and then I ran it by another person that I'm very close with who I work with for a very long time. And they both said, don't do that. Don't do that. And they, they said it out of love, and they said it out of a good place. They're like, people are going to look at you differently. You're never going to get hired. You're not, and I'm like, I actually think people will respect this. And, and for anybody who thinks what you're saying, and I understand and respect that, but it's a very old school way of looking at it, then maybe they don't need to be in my life. Maybe I don't need to work with them, right? And I say this on the cusp of about to, I just wrote a byline for PR week. You know, it's for my little industry, my world. As president of PRSA, Public Relations Society of America, New York chapter, we just did our first mental health survey. Shame on us, we're 75 years old. We finally did our mental health survey, a benchmark survey. And in it, I talk about my own therapy over the years. And I also, you know, advocate that mental health should not be treated as a perk. I'm worried that companies think, oh, you're going to have flexi Fridays and work from anywhere, July and whatever, like, you know, it's for your well-being. Like those are like nice tactical things. That's not mental health. So I know I just threw a lot at you. I just wanted you to comment a little bit about how corporate America and as, a, as an employee, how we can make meaningful change when it comes to mental health and well-being. Yeah. Well, your story resonates with me a lot. I am often torn with, do I get to actually share my real opinion or do I have to share my Aaron Pash as the CEO of a big company opinion? And I think that there's, you know, there's a fine line. I just launched this YouTube show called Out Loud with Aaron Pash, where I'm trying to bring to light some of these things because I have felt a little bit muted in my role, right? Like I have to feel like I, like people can relate to me and carry this corporate presence where people don't think I'm oversharing or crossing a boundary, but I'm also a licensed therapist. And I can tell you that there are several meetings I have sat in, especially as a young female in business and entrepreneur, where I just feel so shamed for having a feeling, any feeling. Because everyone, it's all it's all brass tacks, numbers, you know, all of this kind of business stuff. And so it's definitely something, I mean, it weighs heavy on me. So I understand. I've been that person who's written the article that didn't submit it to, right? And maybe the outcome of that is that more of us need to be vocal and band together and feel like we can share those things. And it's also knowing the right audience. I have a good, healthy self-awareness to know that the struggles that I have, other people would beg for, right? Like it's also that I want other professionals to know that, hey, it's not glorious all the time and that things are hard. You know, I just told my mom the other day, I was like, mom, you know, my job is really hard, right? And she's like, yes, 
yes, Aaron, I know your job is really hard. I'm like, okay, I just needed to, I just needed somebody to know that my job is hard, you know, and value that for me. But I'm I'm acutely aware that it's all about the right audience and that putting something out there for people to, that won't understand will actually, it could hurt that they don't understand that I have empathy across all levels and all experiences and all histories and traumas and all that kind of stuff. So you and I could talk about that for probably a thousand hours and maybe we will. But getting back to kind of what you're saying about corporate mental health, I agree that mental health shouldn't be a perk. And I feel like if we don't make it a perk, it won't get the attention it deserves, right? So if we don't call it out as something that you have to be intentional about or take advantage of, people won't do it. And I can say that as a therapist who doesn't, like who so many clients are like, I should have come here five years ago, but no one supported me or gave me permission or told like I was too afraid to ask or it wasn't talked about. And so I think until mental health truly becomes destigmatized and people truly feel like going to see a therapist is the same as seeing a doctor when their throat hurts, right? Or going and getting their oil changed on their car, right? Until it's seen as that way, we have to be putting it on posters and plastering it as like, do this. This thing is helpful for you. Take the time. Put the energy in. We will fund this for you. We will make this an employee program and do all of these things so that people feel like not only it's okay to go, but we started this program about five years ago now working with law enforcement specifically. There's a huge stigma specifically with law enforcement, first responder community that you can't be vulnerable. You can't talk about your feelings. It's just taboo. And there's a lot of fear that lives within these police officers because what if it gets used in a civil case against me that I go to therapy or, you know, just all these really big fears. We created a program with a local police department here, and now we're the biggest law enforcement first responder wellness program in the country, actually, where we just said, what if your department paid an hourly rate for what we call a wellness consult? And once a year, you can come in, talk to a licensed therapist. They're going to put on their wellness consult hat, not a licensed clinician, and answer your questions. See what that environment is like. See how it feels, right? See that it's a non-threatening thing. You're not going to sign. We're not going to diagnose you. We're not going to make you sign. We're not going to take notes, right? So there's no paper trail here. And the success of this program has been incredible. About 50% of our law enforcement officers continue to go to ongoing counseling. Most of the departments that we work with have provided not just one wellness consult a year, but up to five right? For people who maybe still don't want to cross that line to go into therapy and all of that. So the more we can just desensitize people to what therapy is like, break some of those historical patterns or family patterns that say you got to be tough, or this is how we cope with it in our family, or, you know, all those types of things. And the more we, we call it out, I think the more people are, are going to utilize it. In our remaining time, and this is not to be a downer, actually, I want you to turn a down note to an up note. So this is really going to really challenge you. You mentioned earlier, so like you, I too am a member of the Jewish community. A few years ago, I got, well, this is probably my fifth or sixth tattoo. Listeners can't see it. You could probably see it, it says Hineni, which for those who listeners who don't know, it means here I am or I am here. It's a very, very powerful saying that's throughout the Old Testament, especially during the holidays. And when I got it, my daughter, who's now 18, said to me, oh, that's cool, but do you really want to be a hate crime? And she was kind of half joking, half not. And the way she said that made me very sad because she didn't view that as empowering. And I was trying to explain to her why I did what I did. She viewed it as risk. 
and potentially being unsafe. And I say this because at the moment that we're taping, we're a week away, less than a week away from the midterms. We saw Nancy Pelosi's husband get attacked in the middle of the night in his bedroom by an assailant with a hammer who was looking for her to break her kneecaps, but she found her husband. Many people think not just are we in an environmental crisis, but we're on the cusp of potentially nuclear war, civil war, more animus and hate, more division than ever before. It's a very stressful time. How do you think we should process this? <laughs> Huge question to end the podcast, but. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> this is, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, if you want to charge me for this, I'll Venmo you. It's no problem. As a coach, of course. <laughs> but it's a lot. We're dealing and processing a lot right now. Things that we can't control, but we still have to acknowledge. So you might love my answer and you might hate it, but I talk about this a lot. I'm here to remind you that it is hard right now. But we aren't experiencing harder things than a lot of other people would say they've experienced before us. And I think we need to level set constantly. Yes, it feels like we've never had a bigger polar shift, right, from different, you know, right or left or whatever that feels like. But there's times throughout history, every civilization where times are tough. I don't know if we could say that today is harder than when people, you know, young boys are being drafted and forced into wars, right? Where they died by the dozens, hundreds of thousands, right? In wars across the country that we could assume are senseless. And I think the big problem now is access to information, right? And so what we need to be mindful of, and I think we're actually starting to see it a little bit with some of the Gen Z, is we need to be mindful and we need to be surrounding the content in our lives with things that are supportive. I stopped watching the news a couple of years ago. And I know that some people might say, well, that's a privilege for you to not have to watch the news or know what's going on. And I'm like, when there's information that I need to know, I will find out, right? But it was so devastating for me. It was heartbreaking for me to watch every anti-Semitic attack. I'm the girl who got a beautiful gold star of David necklace for my bat mitzvah that I still have, and I'm afraid to wear it, right? But all the news media constantly, all the time, right? There's probably not more crazy people breaking into politicians' homes and hurting people. I hate that that happened. And we didn't hear about it when it happened 50 years ago, the way we hear about it, right? And a lot of people talk about why are we seeing more mental health stuff now? Why are we seeing more stuff now? And I'm like, well, A, research, education, access, but we're hearing about it more now because we can't not hear about anything anymore. And so that is the answer is it is, I don't want to dismiss and belittle this. These are unprecedented times for sure. But we also have to level set and understand that when we talk to generations before us or read books from other civilizations that they went through really hard stuff too. Our heart is just different. To turn it in the upswing, I feel more empowered now than a lot of people in history that we have the right tools and the advancement of technology to be able to, to make change, to be able to do things differently. I really feel like the more we destigmatize mental health, the more we increase people's ability to be vulnerable, which creates compassion for themselves and for other people who are different, the more we will see that we're not all totally and completely, you know, we don't have to attack each other for being different. We can actually find some of the ways we align. And so compassion is the ultimate goal. And there's a lot of things that will get us there. But the piece that I like to support is, is helping people with their individual mental health. I think that's a great answer. We will end it there. 
we can probably have multiple sessions, if you will, just on social media too and mental health. Maybe we'll do that for part. Maybe we'll, we'll preserve that for part two for another day. But Aaron, I am in awe of what you've been able to do. I deeply, deeply respect it. I think it is a great public service. It's a good, and again, increasing accessibility, decreasing the stigma associated with mental health, I think is probably one of the most important things anybody can do right now in this era for all the reasons that we discussed over the last 45 minutes or so. So thank you so much. I can't wait to see you back on here and maybe meet you in person. And again, congrats on all your success. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.